Hello and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we'll continue our investigation of what the Bible says about the hiddenness of God as we flesh out the scale model that we presented last week. As we search the storyline of scripture, we'd be surprised to find the incredible kindness in God's social distancing and the incredible temporariness of it as well. Well, we're in the second week of our discussion of God's presence and absence and how exactly that works in the Bible. Because if we can figure out how it works in the Bible, we can figure out how it works in our own lives. So for many of us, for so many different reasons, we've either asked or have heard someone ask, why doesn't God just show up? Or where was God when blank? How is it that a God who is supposed to be so real and present feels so distant and obscure? And we talked about the personal and intellectual sides of those doubts, how important it is to get a sense of why a person is voicing them. And that's not just because it's good to show some sensitivity in general, but because the scriptures actually respond very differently in various places to different people in different situations. The Bible's approach to this is complex because we're dealing with some of life's most complicated and difficult questions. So we should expect a sophisticated answer. So what we end up with in the Bible is not a light switch model for thinking of God's presence on, off, on, off, but something more like a scale or a spectrum where we encounter God's presence in various degrees of concentration. Now, if you've already started daydreaming about where you're going to have for breakfast right after I said various degrees of concentration, stick with me. All of the stuff that we talked about last week was really just the setup. We talked about the impact that thinking in terms of a scale model can make in our daily lives, but we never actually fleshed out what that scale looks like. That's what we're after today in the second half of our discussion. So we don't really have the kind of time here on this episode to explore every passage in the Bible that covers this theme of God's presence and absence, or all the verses that talk about what happens when he shows up. So what we're going to do instead is take a look at some sample passages that showcase different points on that scale of how directly God manifests himself to us. Remember that our goal here is not just to walk away with a soundbite lesson on dealing with the hiddenness of God, but to actually get a whole new framework based on the Bible for thinking about that and for interacting with him. So let's start in the beginning, in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 presents the Lord creating, shaping, separating, labeling, and governing the universe which he spoke into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So what we have here is a finite universe, which is completely and actively dependent on its infinite creator. 
We see land and sea, animals and people, stars and planets, the stuff of the cosmos, all of it booming and beautifully presented, but all of it in a whole other category than the one who is designing it. Now, humanity is something special in this account because this creator actually creates them in his own image and blesses them. So our nature, as an image of God, provides us with a greater capacity for experiencing his presence. And we see that unique relationship in the rest of these early chapters of Genesis with Adam and Eve and their relationship with God. But in the middle of that relationship, we see this important distinction remains. God is the governor, the labeler, the separator, assessor, shaper, and so forth in all the affairs of human life. He's the one who not only creates Adam and Eve, but continues to bless them, call them to be fruitful, uh, assign them their allotted food, uh, assess the goodness of their existence, grow their existence as male and female, and so forth. So the bottom line, in, in the paradise of Eden, there's a vast gulf, an infinite gap between the kind of being that God is and the kind of being that humans are. But they still manage to encounter each other in harmony. But what happens when paradise is lost? What happens when sin and death fracture that creation and corrupted creatures like ourselves try to cross that transcendent divide. We'll fast forward to Genesis chapter 32 and Exodus 33 to 34. And we get some more answers. Both passages feature prominent patriarchs, Jacob and Moses, grasping for the fullest possible experience of God's presence. And in both passages, God graciously responds by pointing out the limitations and consequences of experiencing that presence directly. He responds by offering a lesser, mediated form of his glory instead. Now, don't worry, we're going to talk through this. So let's start with Jacob, Genesis chapter 32. What was it that Jacob was really after, and, and why did God restrict it? Well, let's think about Jacob's story for a second. Jacob is the grandson of Father Abraham. He's a part of this really important line of promise that God said he would use to bring a blessing to all nations. But he's not exactly a role model for godly character and faith. His name is Jacob because he comes out of the womb grasping at his brother's heel. He's the trickster taking away his brother's blessing. We see him manipulating his way into every plot progression in the story. Some where we sympathize with him more than others, like when he worms his way out from under his manipulative uncle Laban. But other times we're just like, ugh, Jacob, come on, man. Is he not rightfully named Jacob, we say, along with Esau? Anyway, so as Jacob manipulates his way into every plot progression... All of a sudden, we see him trying to do the same thing with God. Check out chapter 32, starting in verse 22. I've asked Stephanie to help us out with the scripture for today and reading it for us. 
This is Genesis 32, 22-32, in the Net Translation. During the night, Jacob quickly took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. Then a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat Jacob, he struck the socket of his hip so the socket of Jacob's hip was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then the man said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. I will not let you go, Jacob replied, unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? He answered, Jacob. No longer will your name be Jacob, the man told him, but Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, Please tell me your name. Why do you ask my name? the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, explaining, Certainly I have seen God face to face and have survived. The sun rose over him as he crossed over Penuel, but he was limping because of his hips. That is why, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the sinew which is attached to the socket of the hip, because he struck the socket of Jacob's hip near the attached sinew. John Salehammer comments about this passage, saying, quote, The picture of Jacob's struggle with God is meant to epitomize the whole of the Jacob narratives. Here we see a graphic picture of Jacob struggling for blessing, struggling with God and with men, end quote. So this strange wrestling match seems to start up out of nowhere, but as soon as it does, we realize, like, this is a climactic moment here. This is very intense. Jacob, with a dislocated hip, is so intent on grasping and manipulating a blessing not only from his family, but from God himself, that he says, I won't let you go until I get it. And at that point, the Lord renames Jacob Israel, redefining his identity and future as one who struggles with God. But with what I'm sure is a mix of motive, Jacob says, hey, you tell me your name now. Now, this may seem kind of trivial, but it's really not. A person's name meant a whole lot more back then than it does now. Walt Kaiser Jr. argues, quote, The sum total of a person's internal and external pattern of behavior was gathered up into his or her name. Knowing someone's name was equivalent to knowing that person's essence, end quote. So Jacob demands a blessing. God says, hmm, I'm going to completely rename you instead. How about that? Then Jacob says, oh yeah, what's your name? And God says, yeah, no. (laughs) Why are you asking? And then God gives Israel that blessing on his own terms. So we see here something similar to what we saw in Genesis. God is the one who has transcendent control over all of his creation, even naming it like he renamed Jacob. And while Jacob desired to have that kind of grasp on God's essence, his presumption was totally rejected. But still, that that whole manifestation of God's attentive presence humbled 
this patriarch. It says he called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face in verse 30. Ironic, right? Instead of naming God, he names the place he encountered him as a sign of the limitations of human control and comprehension. All right, so bottom line here, God's name, God's face, these are not literal terms, but they represented some kind of display or essence of God. Jacob sought God's name, and instead God graciously showed him his face. And what about Moses? What was he after, and, and why did God restrict it? Moses was this all-important prophet and mediator for God, mediating the Lord's word and presence for the people of Israel, right? But we see in Exodus 33 and 34, though Moses already experienced more intimacy with God than everybody else, he was still dissatisfied in light of the challenging task ahead of him. He was still discontent, hungry for more because of the stubborn Israelites craving a more direct perception of God who transcended the mess. So check out Exodus 33, verse 12. Exodus 33, 12 to 34, 9 in the Net Translation. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have been saying to me, Bring this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. But you said, I know you by name and also you have found favor in my sight. Now if I have found favor in your sight, show me your way, that I may know you, that I may continue to find favor in your sight, and see that this nation is your people. And the Lord said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not take us up from here. For how will it be known then that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we will be distinguished, I and your people, from all the people who are on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing that you have requested, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before your face, and I will proclaim the Lord by name before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he added, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. The Lord said, Here is a place by me. You will station yourself on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now down in chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the Lord by name. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. Responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed to the ground and worshipped and said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord go among us, for we are a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. The Word of the Lord. So it's interesting. In Exodus 33.13, Moses asked to be shown God's ways, it says. And in verse 18, he asked to see God's glory. But the Lord responds by saying, you can't see my face. So that connection between God's glory and face already hints at the sort of thing Moses wanted to experience. You can't see my face, for man can't see me and live. And we talked a little bit already about the significance of someone's name in the Old Testament. And what about this idea of someone's face? Well, according to the theological lexicon of the Old Testament, it says, quote, because one's countenance expresses and characterizes one's nature, panim, the Hebrew word for face, in an expanded sense can also describe the entire person, end quote. It also says that the face can function as the mirror of the soul. So Moses is grasping after something more than he's experienced of God, which is already a lot. But even Moses could not possibly behold an exact mirrored manifestation of God's person. It was not within the capacity of a human being to conceive of such a thing, let alone experience it. God says, no, you can't see my face. You couldn't even survive that. So Jacob seeks God's name and instead gets God's face. But Moses seeks God's face, but instead gets God's name. Now, what do we make of that? Is it that one of those things, the divine name or the divine face, is something that we're supposed to pursue while the other is off limits? Well, that can't be it because someone encountered each of those. So then, is it that we're just supposed to say, well, Jacob and Moses were too sinful to really get that kind of glimpse of God, but now that we're in the New Testament era with Jesus, we can have as much as we want? Well, that's not true either, because the New Covenant absolutely does not break down that creature-creator divide and, and otherness of God. Listen to 1 Timothy six thirteen through 16 It says, The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ... God the Father will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So it's not really smart or healthy to try to read too much into the concept of God's name or God's face trying to figure this out. Instead, we should just say that while these early key figures in the Bible grasped for a more direct experience of God's presence, God graciously denied them what they didn't realize they were even asking for. He graciously gives them a lesser, more indirect experience instead. 
That seems to be the point of both passages when it comes to experiencing God's presence. That massive gulf between who we are and who he is is still there. And in fact, with sin and death in the mix, it's even more dangerous to try to overstep. So tying together what we've looked at so far in the Bible, we have to say that a direct experience of God's presence is just straight up impossible and totally presumptuous. And if it's not impossible, then it's obliterating. Scripture may be presenting this kind of direct manifestation as a hypothetical possibility in places like this, but it doesn't allow us to entertain the possibility long before pointing out the hypothetical effects. For God to show up in such a way as to cross that divide altogether, we'd end up with the matter of this physical world crushed under the infinite weight and otherworldliness of God. It would mean all finite weakness swallowed up by the transcendent glory radiating from his very being. But don't miss the mercy in these passages, too. While Jacob and Moses beg for this hypothetical obliteration without realizing it, the great I am withholds his direct presence and therefore shows his merciful disposition as our creator. He does not let Jacob in on the secrets of his name, mushing his mind in the process, but graciously offers something less. He does not show Moses the fullness of his face, obliterating his body in the process, but graciously offers him something less. So let's go back to that scale model or spectrum in our heads and write this one in. Remember that the scale we're talking about is measuring how directly we experience God's presence. You guys know what an axis break is in like charts and timelines and stuff? It's that, um, that little zigzag line that breaks up the scale. Like someone smushed the x-axis together. And it basically says we're skipping ahead a lot to something far down the line on this axis. Okay, well on the far right of our scale model for God's presence and hiddenness, picture an axis break. Picture the direct presence of God on the other end. To really experience God's presence without any limitations or mediations or differences, the way we experience the presence of another human being, is totally beyond the limits of what a scale can represent it, it's totally beyond what the human mind can even fathom. So think about that. The mere fact that the great I am, the great creator of the cosmos, does not totally and utterly show up in front of us is actually an act of mercy. Because literally, we, we can't handle that as human beings. And think about the kindness in that hiddenness. Yes, God told Jacob and Moses no, in a sense, when they said stop hiding. But that in itself showed them something about him, didn't it? Don't they come out the other end with a renewed sense and experience of who God is, even as he gives them something more indirect? 
And isn't that indirectness what they needed to know about who they're encountering? Next week, we'll continue to flesh out this scale model with what's left of the axis break, the various ways that God shows himself to us through more mediated forms. But we've already got plenty to work with in just Genesis and Exodus. I've definitely found in my own life that it's so easy to get into trouble thinking of God like he's just one of us but bigger, like Superman or something. After all, our Savior himself is 100% human, even while he's 100% God. So it makes that way of thinking even more tempting. Not to mention all the movies we watch and the books we read where God is depicted as a child or glowing humanoid or whatever. Yet our Heavenly Father is of a completely different substance than the stuff of this world. A totally different level of existence from which all other existence derives. I'm not trying to get super jargony or idealistic. Just think about what the opening chapters of Genesis show us. There is an infinite gulf, an important distinction between the kind of being that we are as dependent humans and the kind of being that God is. Even in the complete paradise with Adam and Eve, that difference is still there. That uneven relationship works so long as Adam and Eve don't try to overstep. But we all know where that goes. Like Jacob and Moses, we may need to think about the mixed motives we're pursuing the presence of God with. But I'm not trying to answer our existential crisis with a guilt trip. Even with the best of motives, even with the purest of pain, we need to understand that we may not be realizing what we're asking. Even if that kind of direct exposure to the presence of God were possible, it would just obliterate us. And so even while we beg for that demise, God graciously offers us something less. He still gives us something to put down on the scale to the left of the axis break. Jacob still encounters something of God's face, just not his name. And Moses still encounters something of God's name, just not that total face. And we, like them, can learn from that whole exchange of what we now have, what we do encounter, and and what we don't, and fall on our faces and worship. We may want to ask, why doesn't God just show up? But instead, we get a new set of questions. What are we really asking of God? And what would happen if we actually got it? The Rebind is made possible by the help of Andrew Horning over at Andrew Horning Sound, along with the art contributed by graphic designer Adam Anderson. If you've been enjoying The Rebind, if you want to let others know about these episodes, please spread the word. Give us a rating on iTunes, leave a review, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever you got. And so we pray in the words of the hymn, Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. 
All laud we would render, oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth 